Welcome to Policy Ish Talk, an ACI podcast where we sit down with policy experts, industry leaders, and top academics to discuss today's toughest social, economic, and policy questions. I'm your host, Chris Bushuk. In today's episode, we're discussing the current climate surrounding e-cigarette regulation and tobacco harm reduction. My guest is Chelsea Boyd, a fellow in R Street's harm reduction policy area. Her research and writing focuses on decreasing harmful health outcomes for people who engage in high-risk behavior, such as smoking and recreational drug use. She also applies harm reduction principles to topics including sexual health, mental health, and infection disease. Prior to joining R Street, Chelsea worked for the peer review department at the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And while there, she evaluated principal investigators' experiences with the Institute's unique peer review process. Chelsea's public health experience also includes serving as a research assistant at the District of Columbia Center for AIDS Research and a laboratory coordinator at Colorado State University's Anthropoid-Born Infectious Diseases Laboratory. Welcome, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in. What are the health impacts of e-cigarettes and vaping products? What are the specific risks? Do you do we have data on what the short and long-term effects are of these products? So what we know is that the health risks are significantly lower than they are for combustible products such as cigarettes. What we don't know is the long-term impact of use of e-cigarettes. And that's just because they're a new product and we don't have necessarily the longitudinal epidemiological data that we have on combustible cigarettes. Another challenge that we're facing in collecting that data is that a lot of the data that we collect on e-cigarettes is confounded by smoking combustible cigarettes as well. So that is to say that people who, many people who use e-cigarettes are former or current smokers. So whether or not the health impacts that we're seeing from seeing are coming from the smoking versus the e-cigarette is sometimes difficult to suss out in a lot of those. Um, At this point in time, we have seen that data out of England has said that e-cigarettes are at least 95% um, safer than combustible cigarettes. We've also seen the uh, Cochrane Review recently come out and say that um, e-cigarettes are safer for safer to use than um, combustible cigarettes. And we've also seen that the National Academies of Science has said that if you completely substitute e-cigarettes for combustible cigarettes, there are health benefits. So there are certainly a number of organizations that have said that e-cigarettes are less harmful than combustible cigarettes. However, a lot of the long-term studies that people like to see, particularly public health um, bodies like to see, just are non-existent because the product hasn't been around long enough. So we do see that a lot of activists and actually many academics have adopted a more hostile regulatory paradigms for reduced risk products. Um, And all are designed to reject the notion of any benefit from these reduced uh, risk tobacco products. 
what does this do for the current rhetoric to ban uh, e-cigarettes and vaping? So it's made it incredibly polarized and incredibly difficult to advocate for reduced risk products. Uh, The polarization is evident in any setting that you go to, whether that's uh, hearing for a bill or even just when new papers come out uh, on and academics are discussing them. Uh, I think that the unwillingness by some to even consider the concept that e-cigarettes could have a benefit for adult smokers is really linked to the tobacco wars and how there's a lot of public health people out there who uh, will never be able to see a tobacco product for anything other than it being a tobacco product. And that's disappointing for those of us who think that there is well, who recognize that there's a risk continuum, which is something that the FDA has also recognized uh, for tobacco products. And really that negative rhetoric just permeates and comes out into the public discourse more than anything else. And we see it affecting the perceptions of consumers about e-cigarettes. Right. And uh, but why is this discrepancy between public perception and of e-cigarettes and research evidence? Right. You you talked a bit about where research evidence uh, is and how, how can this be changed? Um, what type of evidence do we need to change the public's and policy per, uh, policymakers perception, too, about the safety of these products? One of the things that will, I think that a lot of public health practitioners and researchers are really hanging their hat on the need for long-term epidemiological data, which I already told you is challenging to come by. And unfortunately, by the nature of it being long-term data, it takes a long time to get. In the meantime, I think part of what is happening is that there is a lot of people who have dug in their heels and there's very few voices that are willing to see their data outside of their chosen lens. Um, And I say that very carefully because I don't want to imply that um, researchers are doing anything malicious or necessarily research misconduct, although we have seen a couple of papers retracted because of uh, academic misconduct. I I think that there is, though, a tendency to design studies to find what you think you should find. And that's part of the publication systems, um, I guess, incentivizing of how they publish, publish, but I'm getting off topic on that one. Um, so really, I'm, I am not sure that we have that one piece of data or really even a big combination of data is going to convince the most dug in academics that e-cigarettes can be a harm reduction strategy. And that's kind of a negative attitude on my part, but it's seeming more and more that the sides have just taken their stances and there may not be one way that we can get them to come together. So let's move a bit to what's happening at the government level in terms of uh, regulating this product. Uh, Can you give me a quick 
recap of what's been currently happening at both federal and state level and what is the impact of these efforts to limit or ban e-cigarettes. Yes. So at the state level, we're seeing a lot of uh, proposed taxation increases for e-cigarettes. We're also seeing a lot of potential flavor bans or in some cases, just complete outright bans of uh, alternative nicotine delivery systems such as e-cigarettes. At the federal level, we have already seen a ban of pod-based flavored products um, while they allowed the open systems, which are like the tanks that you would add a separate liquid to. So the classic one is the pod-based or jewel and the open tank systems are like the bottles that you put into um, a tank. But we've seen some differentiation between those products at the federal level. And now we're really waiting for the on the federal side for the FDA to make their uh, pre-market tobacco product application, which is also known as a PMTA designations for all of the products that submitted applications last year. And those decisions are supposed to be coming down the pike in September. And those are really, that's really an important date and a really important activity going on in the federal space. Because one of the things that the PMTA process does is that they evaluate the products for the, that they are appropriate for the protection of public health. And that is something that if the FDA is saying, hey, look, we've seen the data from these products, we've really evaluated how it can impact young people, how it can impact current smokers, how it can impact um, non-smokers. And we think that there is a case that these products are beneficial for smoking, for smokers enough so, so that we think that they're allowed on, they should be allowed on the market. That's a really strong statement from the FDA. And it's something that we can take to states and say, look, we know that you have concern about e-cigarettes and these other alternative products. However, the FDA has said that there's a class of them that are appropriate for the protection of public health. And you should consider perhaps exempting these products from whatever legislation that you're or bans that you may want to put in place. And on top of that, it comes down to it preempts a lot of the state legislation. So if the FDA says that a class of products can't be on the market, that takes that overrides what a state has to say. Um, of course, states can be more restrictive than the FDA, but we would like to see them not do that, of course. But really, I think the PMTA is the thing that has the biggest implications for regulation right now, uh, both both at the federal and the state level, just because it can really be something that advocates hang their hat on to say that the FDA has found these deemed these products to be safe enough for public consumption. Right. And I guess we'll have to wait and see how things are to play out with the FDA. But what is the threat of over-regulating these products? So there are several different 
threats to overregulating the products. I mean, the first one and the one that I find the most important is that it could lead some people back to smoking. Um, people who, and it could also prevent people from switching over to a safer product. We know that from uh, research that a lot of, that there are definitely people who say that they would do whatever they needed to, to find or access their preferred product if there were a ban in place. Uh, we also see from some evidence recently, a study came out that showed that the full ban on flavored tobacco products in San Francisco led to more youth smoking. Um, so we see that there's also a risk that people can switch back to smoking and smoking rates could rebound if the products are overregulated. Then there's also the risk of illicit markets um, and of criminalization of a product, which I'm not a criminal justice person. Um, however, we know from cannabis regulation and from alcohol prohibition that prohibition just doesn't work and that people are going to find a way to access those products. And if you have a criminalization of them, that can bring more reason for law enforcement to engage with people who um, may be doing very little wrong other than, you know, possessing a contraband product. Um, so I think it's interesting that as we are watching the deregulation or the um, prohibition of cannabis kind of scale down, that we're seeing this scaling up of regulation on vaping products, uh, nicotine vaping products. And uh, I think it's it's something where we can look to what we've seen in the past with cannabis to how it may, how over regulation may impact people. So there are, I mean, from what you're explaining, there are some very obvious and real consequences of making these safer products less available to the people that need them. But what about perpetuating false information about this risk? Like, what are, are the consequences of that? I think we've already seen some of the consequences of that. So one of the examples that I like to point to is the outbreak of um, e-cigarette and vaping product induced lung injury, which is also termed e-valley. Uh, we saw that before the pandemic started, uh, and it was caused by illicit THC cartridges that were vaped by uh, individuals, and then they and those cartridges contained a chemical known as vitamin E acetate that led to um, severe pneumonia-like symptoms, and that was just handled very poorly, in my opinion, by the public health um, machine, I guess. The CDC was very slow to acknowledge that it was not nicotine vaping products and still hasn't 100% said it's not nicotine vaping products. They've come very close, but they haven't uh, completely exonerated nicotine products. And we saw that there are drops in vaping. Um, and that is something that we, that a lot of people are um, associating with the Valley messaging and how e-cigarettes were seen as dangerous, even though it's not necessarily the nicotine manufactured nicotine e-cigarettes that are 
the cause. So that kind of misinformation can certainly lead people to switch back to smoking. Um, I think also you will occasionally hear about exploding e-cigarettes, which is another thing that just doesn't happen very often. And uh, one of my mentors always likes to mention that there are far more house fires from combustible cigarettes than there are uh, explosions of e-cigarettes. So again, this kind of focusing on the tragic, but nevertheless more rare occurrences leads people to think that there's, that these products are of greater risk than they really are. So Chelsea, if we look at how the U.S. approaches um, the use of e-cigarettes and then how the U.K. approaches, there are obviously some diver- divergent positions. And wh- why is that, though? From what I understand from my counterparts in the U.K. is that part of it is just a cultural difference, in particularly in how they see the see the progression from youth to adulthood. We've seen a moral panic here in the United States over youth vaping, which of course no one wants, but we've, and because we see this transition to adulthood is very like, okay, you turned 18 or you turned 21, you're an adult. Now you have all of these privileges that come with adulthood and before and beforehand, none of those apply. Um, from what I understand is that they haven't seen that same moral panic in the UK because there's more of a understanding that you transition slowly between youth and adulthood and there's less, I guess, panic over people or over young people potentially using e-cigarettes Um, So that's part of it. I think also just that from the very jump, um, the UK has just taken a very strong harm reduction stance towards e-cigarettes and the EU and the UK don't regulate e-cigarettes as tobacco products, whereas the United States does. So I think that differentiation is another piece that has really um, lended its or has really caused some of the differences in how we've seen Uh, e-cigarettes accepted in the UK versus the United States um, because as being a tobacco product, they landed, their regulation landed squarely with the FDA, uh, whereas it could have landed elsewhere or um, not if they had not been deemed tobacco products. And the $1 million question, how should e-cigarettes and vaping products be regulated so that consumers are not at risk from potential harmful effects, but at the same time, they can have access to the benefits that these products provide? Yes. So I think the most important thing is that we don't criminalize them, Uh, that sending them underground is the worst possible thing that we could be doing. As far as the practical regulation or more practical regulation of them, I think that what the FDA is doing with the PMTA process has its flaws and is particularly detrimental to small retailers. Um, However, I think that having a regulatory body who is reviewing data on these products and making a designation that they are appropriate for the 
protection of public health is really important and the way that we need to proceed. Again, I, I think that maybe there's a little bit too much that the FDA expects maybe a little bit too much from producers to prove their case. It's kind of more of a guilty until proven innocent um, stance than a innocent until proven guilty stance. But I, I think that the PMTA process is a step in the right direction. And then moving forward from that, the modified risk tobacco products, which is an MRTP, and that goes a step further than the PMTA to show that the product is uh, less harmful than combustible products and um, not necessarily on par with uh, nicotine replacement therapy and other cessation products, but that it's um, it's compared more heavily towards that type of a product than it is than they would be for a PMTA. So that's my uh, solution for it, even though it's probably not the most satisfying one. Well, I guess we'll have to see. So, uh, but Chelsea, any concluding thoughts for our listeners? You know, I think that the biggest thing is just to keep an open mind and especially for regulators to recognize that there are unintentional consequences as well as intentional consequences to whatever regulation you put forward on any product, but particularly e-cigarettes. I also think that, you know, correcting misinformation is just something that we're all going to have to work very hard towards doing, but mostly thank you for having me. Thank you for joining the podcast.